Well, good morning, everybody. We've been in this series called Playlist, and uh, we've been looking at the book of Psalms. We've looked at, uh, just like a playlist in an iPod, we've looked at how different songs and different poems and different psalms of the Bible can teach us how to tune our minds and our hearts towards joy amidst uh, the challenges of life. And so we've looked at, one, a new view of suffering in Psalm 22, and two, a new view of a way to pray when life is dark in Psalm 88. Three, we've looked at a new way to praise in Psalm 103, and today we look at a new way to true happiness. So, uh, as we begin today, I'll start with a question. Uh, What do you believe about true happiness? Like, some people, I think, believe that true happiness means not living on a budget. Okay? I mean, think about it. If you don't look at what's coming in and look at what's going out, and you just think it's going to magically be there, then you can kind of live a carefree life. You can, especially if you don't have to alter your spending habits. So, so people who, who maybe fall into this category think, uh, I'll be truly happy if I could just buy the things I want. So sometimes it's really subtle, like we're going to do a little window shopping. Okay, how many of you window shopped before? A few of you. Some people don't want to admit, that's okay. Uh, now, sometimes it's a little bit more obvious, like if you've had a very stressful or difficult day and you come home with shopping bags in your hands, and the people or person you live with goes, hey, what happened? And you say, oh, it was a super stressful day, but hey, I spent way less money than I would of on real therapy, so let's just call this shopping therapy, and we'll just keep going with the day, okay? See, we think true happiness might come from not living on a budget. Some of us believe that true happiness comes from the latest technology, like tens of thousands of people who line up the day before or even the night before or hours before a giant grand opening of a new release of some I something. And, and they, they think, oh, I've got this. Now I'm truly happy. Other people, it's, uh, it's night before stuff. It's spending Thanksgiving on the sidewalk of a big box re- realtor or um, retailer. And if I can just eat my turkey dinner right in front of Best Buy, then I'll be happy because I just saved $15 on this new TV. Some people think uh, happiness comes from looking a certain way. If I have the right clothes, if I work out, if I lose weight, if I gain weight, um, then I'll be happy. And so people think about this. They sometimes obsess about this. They think about how much they exercise or or how much they eat or what they eat or what they wear. And if they look right, they'll be truly happy. Some people look for true happiness in social media. A 2012 study in the UK found out that half the people who use social media regularly actually found that it affected their behavior in a negative way, though, because they kept thinking about comparing themselves to others, and they spent more time in front of the computer. It was harder to relax and disconnect. And then 45% of them, even with all that, felt like being away from it made me anxious, nervous, or uncomfortable. So... So there's all these different ways that we can find happiness. On top of some of the things that I haven't mentioned, like those who find happiness and pleasure, or physical pleasure, and if I can't get it, or you won't give it to me, then I'll just find it myself. And I'll look where I want to look, and I'll do what I want to do, because because if it feels good, let's do it. 
And then others of us think that the right career will make us truly happy. And we'll spend, I was reading about a girl who, uh, from, my, from my former college, who had nine jobs in eight years because she wanted to get the right one. And, and when she was a finalist for this dream job, she said it was the happiest day of my life. Maybe, but what if it doesn't work out? We have this little obsession with happiness. And yet the Bible doesn't say it's bad. It just gives a completely different way to find it. It's a way that's very clearly marked in Psalm 32. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there with me. And I just want you, as you're turning there, to think about what do you believe about true happiness? If you have one of these blue Bibles that we give out, it's uh, page 446. So where does that true happiness come from? How do we pursue it? What do we think about in the meantime? God shows us the way to true happiness. See, the catch is, though, most of us don't really believe it. So Psalm 32 starts out, it's a psalm of David, it's a mascal, which is, uh, we don't really know what the word means. Could be a song of wisdom, could be a song of contemplation, could be a well-written song. We're not quite sure, we just know that David wrote it, and again, like last week, David was the ideal king, he's the king's king. If anybody has a life that we should model after, with the exception of some problems, it should be David. So in Psalm 32, this uh, might be marked as a Thanksgiving psalm, but again, how do we get true happiness? Psalm 32 says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Now, I think if we just looked at that statement, most of us would say, yeah, okay, I get that. See, oh, what joy means blessed or blessed. And it's this word, eshur, and it, it's the closest, the Hebrew, the closest thing is truly happy. True happiness. Happy is the person who has been forgiven, it says, whose sin has been covered. It's in the closet. It's not coming out. It's locked and the key's thrown away. It's the person who doesn't have any guilt. It's the person who doesn't deceive others. If you've walked through a week or a day where you haven't done anything wrong, you haven't told any lies, not even a little tiny deceit, where, where truth kind of just lived, you lived truth out your whole day, do you not feel lighter? Do not feel more free. A person who lives this way has nothing to hide and nothing to fear. So I think most of us would go, yeah, all right. Truly happy is the person who's been forgiven. Okay, I'm good with that. But but what about if we did do something wrong? What about if we did tell a large lie or a small lie? Just a little tiny lie at the end. That's what deception is. A lot of truth and a little tiny lie. Then, then what do we think? When we do have something to hide or do have something to fear, 
do we think, yes, it's still true. Happy is the person who's been forgiven. I think most of us would still say yes. Yes, if I've done something wrong and I've been forgiven, then yeah, I'm happy. In fact, Jesus might even go so far as to say, yeah, you're more happy. Not quite. He says that the person who forgives much or who's been forgiven much loves much. The person who's been forgiven little loves little. Love and, and happiness, not quite the same, but I think in this um, statement, it's close. So, would you go with me on that one? Happy is the person who, even though they've done wrong, who's been forgiven, yes, yes, they're happy. Okay? So, if we're okay with that, then it's how we get there. Okay? How we get to being forgiven, that's the part that we have a really hard time with. The psalmist says that we're forgiven when we confess our sin to God. In verse 3, he connects it. He says, happy is the person who's been forgiven. When I refuse to confess my sin, he continues, finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord. And therefore, let all the godly pray to you. These are all connected phrases that come back to how we are forgiven. We are forgiven by confessing our sin to God. David believes with all of his heart, the one who is truly happy, Eshua, is, has been forgiven. The one who's truly happy has been forgiven. And when we're forgiven, it's because we've confessed our sin to God. That's the part we're not quite okay with. And, and King David is not trying to make a proper theological statement. Because I think we would all agree, if we have studied the Bible before, that yes, I agree, theologically, we're forgiven when we confess our sin to God. But see, he's sta- stating some realities here. He's saying sin is disobedience in first. Verse 1. In verse 2, he's saying that sin is a record of guilt. In, in verse uh, 2 at the end, it says, Sin is any deceit, big or small. And finally, he says, Sin is rebellion against the Lord. See, this is why I think David is called a man after God's own heart. It's not because he's perfect. So don't hear me saying that the people who are happy are perfect. It's a lie. David was not perfect. David is a man after God's own heart because, I think, because he understood what God's heart was like. He understood how sin affected him and how sin affected God. And he gives hugely pissed picturesque language to describe it. In verse 3, he says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night, God's hand of discipline was on me, and my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Then finally, I confessed all my sin to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. 
I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You are my protection from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. So the Lord says, I will guide you along the best path for your life. I will advise you and I will watch over you. One translation says, I will keep my eye on you. Do not be like the senseless horse or the mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked. But unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Now, I think David is connecting the reality of the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual consequences of sin. The effects, if you will. Many people report feeling sick to their stomach after they've done something wrong. Many people report that when they've told a lie, they have to tell another lie and another lie and another lie to keep track of that lie. When someone has... They have to keep track of who they've told and what they've said. And so they have to make sure that story is straight. Then they have to go to somebody else and then make sure that the story that they tell can't get back to this person, but, you know, they, that they tell the same amount of details to this person if they need to tell those details. And it becomes this giant chess game until maybe it finally crumbles or it's just so hard to keep up with that mentally they can't take it anymore. Emotionally, people feel guilty after sin. Sure, the church may have and probably still does a poor job of helping people feel extra guilty. But if the church wasn't even involved in it, people still report this sense of guilt after they've done something that they know is wrong. The emotions are affected. But probably most of all, the the spiritual effects, we begin to feel distant from God. We feel a conviction from God. I mean, he says, I groaned all day long, day and night, your hand of discipline was on me. One translation says, God, I felt like you were out to get me. One disobedient human's perspective of, of God but my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. If our strength comes from the Lord and we're rebelling against him, it's hard to ask for God for strength. But even with all those effects, even if you agree with those, maybe you don't, but even if you do agree with the the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual consequences of sin, even in that, I think we still have a hard time taking the next step, which is, What do we do with that? We have these physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual consequences of effects of sin. Do we confess our sin to God? The psalm doesn't seem to think we do, even though we should. It uses words like hiding place and trouble, judgment, and 
there are plenty of us that say, hmm, confess my sin to God, cover it up, hide it, deal with it on my own. Somehow this seems easier. And so we think we're going to get in trouble or we think we're going to get judged, and so we hide. We hide our guilt. We pad our expense report. We erase the web history. When we hear a phrase like, I've got my eye on you, when we want to turn our head back and wonder if there's going to be accusations flying, what's our picture of God in that? I think our picture of God in that is that we don't trust him. That we think that God is going to get us like he's this divine law enforcement agency or this judicial system that's just out to make sure that we get what we deserve, that justice is served. I went to court for a friend recently. I did. Uh, uh, This friend made a couple of poor choices, really poor choices, and now he may face jail time, hefty fines, um, taking at least one, if not more, of his major freedoms away. And, uh, and it was tough. And he was feeling this huge guilt over what he did, but he was not going to God with it. I shared pieces of Psalm 32 with him, and he said, I just don't feel like I deserve to approach God. I'm not good enough to talk to God about this. And we went back and forth over a few weeks. Me encouraging to pray, me praying for him. Me saying, we're all just a few bad choices away from ending up where you're at. And sort of getting it, sort of not. And as we walked into the courtroom to await some stuff, the person that came out before him put it all in perspective for me. He came through the doors and he walked up to the bench. Actually, he didn't walk. He shuffled. Because not only was he handcuffed, but he was also um, in a foot restraint. And those uh, old black and white jumpsuits that they showed in the cartoons, those are real. It was more of a gray and black. It was in a gray and black onesie jumpsuit. And he shuffled forward. And his head was down. And he must have already talked to the lawyers because um, there was a lot of uh, statements that were made. They, first, they read the report of what he had allegedly done. It was tragic. It was violent. It was evil. But there was a sadness in the room that, that was so hard to describe. And the attorneys said, now, you realize by pleading guilty to this, this and this and this is going to happen. And do you admit this guilt of uh, this statement that was recorded? Yes, he said that. And um, now, it's also going on record that you allegedly, not allegedly, that you 
um, that you made this accusation, um, this threat. Describe that. Yes, that's true. All right, and do you realize that if you admit your guilt for this, that this, this, and this will happen too? His head was down the whole time. And this is the picture that I think we give ourselves is I don't want to end up like that. And so we think if we can just hide stuff, we can be free. And as long as we're good enough, smart enough, cover up enough, we don't have to end up like that guy who's going to watch a TV like this. This is a prison TV that you can see all the way through. It's got no metal parts showing, or I actually probably no metal at all, plastic screws holding it together. Because this person that I saw could not be trusted with any sharp object, anything that could be weighed into a weapon. The divine justice, or the the human justice system, was living out verse 9. Hey, you didn't make wise choices, so the person who is like a senseless horse or mule needs a bit and a bridle. When I leave you alone, you can't make good choices. Maybe you're young and you've heard that before. Maybe you're old and you've heard that before. And so we try and outwit so we don't end up with a bit and a bridle. Because we're unwilling to allow God to deal with our sin. We think us dealing with it is better. But ultimately, this would be what we have to look forward to. So the psalmist says, but when we're willing to let God deal with our sin, this is what happens. When we confess all our sins to God, it says that he heals all of it. He forgives it all, forgives all my sin. When I stop trying to hide my guilt, he forgives, and all the guilt is gone. That's not coincidence. When we confess all our sins to God, he forgives, and he forgives all our sin, and he heals and forgives all our guilt. There may be consequences, but the guilt is gone. Not only that, he says, let all the godly pray to you while there's still time. Do you want to make the choice, he's saying? Do you want to be willing to let God deal with your sin, or do you want to be willing to try and do it yourself? But when the godly pray to God, they don't drown in the floodwaters of judgment. They don't need to hide because God becomes their hiding place. They don't need to look for protection because God becomes their protection, verse 7. They don't need to try and uh, make artificial means of helping themselves to feel better or feel happy or do shopping therapy because God surrounds them with songs of victory. And when God says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life and I will advise you and watch over you, He says, my loving eye is on you. Like a parent who's just so fond of their child. Probably someone that had to wait a really long time. Possibly someone who has adopted children. Who's waited and waited and waited for these adopted children. 
every time they play, their loving eyes upon them. Not because they're afraid of what they're going to do or not because they're ready to stand over them and scold them, but because they just enjoy seeing this person play. That's the relationship that God wants with us. God has a best plan for us. And it doesn't include rebellion from him. And he does advise us and watch over us. But not as a divine justice system. And he says, Hey, many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust God. Not those who've been forgiven, not those who love, not those who have not done as many bad things as the next person, but those who trust God. Those who trust God are willing to let him deal with their sin. And when they're willing to let God deal with their sin and they confess it to him, he does forgive them. And those who are forgiven are free from the guilt. And those who are free from the guilt can be surrounded by songs of victory. Those who are free from the guilt can rejoice and be glad, it says, all you who obey him. Not because you're trying to do it in your own strength again, but because you trust God. Those who trust God want to obey him. And God helps them obey him. And so we can shout for joy, it says, all you whose hearts are pure or whose hearts are right with God. Again, not because of their own effort, but because they took their stuff to God who dealt with it. So, how many of you want to be truly happy? How many of you have tried to do it in your own strength? How many of you have tried to find all the things outside of God that will make you happy? All the people, all the stuff, all the pleasures. The list for everybody can just go on and on. But do we trust God enough to make us happy? And we trust God enough by confessing our sin to him. So that would mean we'd have to admit that sin exists. That would mean that we'd have to admit that we have sin. But Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any way of unrighteousness in me. Not, not, go to the person next to you, and as you greet them, tell them all the things you think they do wrong. But, God, where are you convicting me? If there's guilt in my life, God, maybe it's because you are, are pressing that in because Hebrews says that God disciplines those he loves. That's a good thing. Not punishes, he disciplines. But 1 John 1.9 says this promise, if we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just. Full of justice. God's justice, not what we think of justice. God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all wickedness. And when we do that, friends, when we confess our sin to him, this happens. 
we are not surrounded by judgment anymore, but we are surrounded by songs of victory. That's not just an emotional high, although we might have emotional feelings about it. We are protected by God when we confess our sins to him. We are guided by God. We would feel close to God. We would feel his, not just a little bit of love, unfailing love. A love that never ceases, never stops, will never not make it. A love that will never not show up. A love that will never not be late. It's unfailing. And so we can rejoice and sing if we confess our sins to him. That is the way of true happiness. Will you walk it with me? Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Yes, what, whose sin is put out of sight. What joy it is for those whose, the, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Unfailing love surrounds those who trust God. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who trust him. Shout for joy, you whose hearts are pure. God, we take this time to confess and talk to you.